This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Ambition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience. And just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Greenspan, who is the Director of Cultural Strategy for Sparks and Honey. So Ben, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Good. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to this. Um, I don't think we're connected on LinkedIn, um, which is a surprise, but um, culture is one of my hot topics, um, specifically around the data and analytics industry, which most of my listeners are probably sick of hearing me bang on about. But um, yeah, so looking forward to this. So I guess where we always start, Ben, uh, we ask our guests to give themselves a, a brief introduction into, I guess, their background and, and journey to date, if you would be so kind. Sure. Well, first of all, we could fix that LinkedIn problem if you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> we have the power within within us to do that. Um, and yeah, I'm very excited, as I said, to be on. I have, uh, you know, built a career off of thinking about culture. But um, as long as uh, people are wondering who I am, what I'm doing on this podcast to help you bang on about culture about. Um, so I, uh, as I said, my, as you said, my name is Ben Grinspan. I am based in New York City, Brooklyn, specifically, if you're curious, on the in the borough. Um, I, uh, and I'm a, a director of cultural strategy at Sparks and Honey. I started, I'm from Philadelphia originally, started uh, my my studies in politics and French. And while I don't get to use much French at work, and I mostly just tweet about politics, um, you know, they were definitely influences I have found on um, this sort of professional culture and data journey that I've been on. I uh, I started my professional career at a uh, landscape architecture firm, which is cool. I'm not an architect. I could never be an architect. They do things that I do not have the math skills for. But um, part of the job was helping to run their social media. And what I accidentally discovered in that job was that I liked writing uh, website copy, but I loved Google Analytics. That was the real highlight of, of the job. And, and maybe I'm dating myself there a little bit, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it's it's been an important part of my, my journey. I spent some time working in the real estate industry, got a master's uh, in strategic communications at Columbia, which was a very good program for me. And it was in that role that I realized that I could do strategy full time. That, you know, uh, there are people who do marketing, there are people who like, who, who have a head for that. Um, and that what I was sort of more destined to do is think about often some some bigger uh, stuff, mostly because I get very anxious before I send a corporate tweet. <laughs> um, but so uh, about five, spent some time in ad tech, spent some time working in agencies um, and ended up uh, almost five years ago now at Sparks and Honey, which we'll get into what that is. Um, but uh, yeah, we are tasked with basically making sense of culture for Fortune 500 companies. Um, and I've been there ever since working on a really big variety of projects for uh, you know, television, uh, the spirits and liquor industry, food, insurance, uh, even some cool government clients. So we get to touch a lot here and uh, we'll get into our methodology, but um, yeah, it's the kind of thing where I, you know, uh, I think it would be fair to call me a fairly online person as they would say. And what is great about my job is the chance to um, make uh, make some sense out of that, to take that that potential Twitter obsession and help uh, people figure out what that means for uh, for, for culture and for, for their organization. Yeah, nice, nice. Um... So I know you kind of alluded to what Sparks and Honey is and does at a very high level. That's part of a bigger business, right? Can you give us a bit of insight into kind of the structure of the business and, and stuff like that? Yes. So we are owned by Omnicom, the media holding company that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. 
And we were started there, I mean, essentially as a, as a startup within the organization, our CEO, Terry Young, and our chief strategy officer, uh, Camilla LaCruz, sort of had this idea to, to create an organization that would help, as I said earlier, bring structure to, to culture change. And it's funny when you talk about culture change, people expect you to think about like internal culture. No, we're really, uh, in many ways, we spent our first, you know, eight years thinking about pop culture. Um, now we're thinking a little bit more about internal structure, but we were started kind of, you know, three or four people uh, within Omnicom, you know, a little section of a little office on some faraway floor and um, through, I think, uh, some really, really smart work. And I think through basically um, a little bit of luck with technology, honestly, and a lot of vision, we've grown to a 60 person company. We, as I said, work with, um, you know, a really, really impressive roster of, of companies and um, oftentimes they'll come in through the door through Omnicom itself, right? It's got, you know, tens of thousands of employees. It's a billions of dollar company. Um, but also we just have developed a really fabulous reputation. So um, we get to work with lots of very cool clients in a way that most people at a 50, 60 person organization uh, don't get to. And that's kind of what makes it exciting uh, to, to work there. So um, just quickly, one more thought here is that I feel like it's important to explain that we are often at the top of the funnel when it comes to creative, but we do work closely with other Omnicom agencies like BBDO, like DDB, like TBWA, who will do sort of that creative work. So we are part of the ad world, but we are in a slightly different section of the ad world. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes uh, that makes sense and really appreciate the, the insight. So I guess before we jump into kind of connecting the power of data and culture for good and for change and all of that type of stuff, what does the day-to-day look like to be a director of cultural change? Because I mean, it's a fantastic title. You know, I, I might change yeah. my title to I might change my title to that. Seeing as I own this business, <laughs> I can I can call myself whatever I want, and I might call myself that. <laughs> I think I think secretly most of us could get away with calling ourselves whatever we want. Um, <laughs> my favorite uh, the corporate title right now is when some people are like director of people, and that to me sounds like a little uh, it's a little kind of dystopian, but. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, what does a day-to-day look like in the, in the cultural strategy world? Well, I think, you know, our um, our clients tend to come to us when, they, uh, when they've realized that culture is getting a little bit past them or that there are things going on that they don't have a grip on, right? Uh, we often work with, it's, it's a shame, I, I, I can't, I'm not really supposed to share specific names, but, you know, we will get a major leading um, candy uh, company, a, a confectionery that will come to us and say, we are freaked out by single source uh, single origin chocolate. We recognize that is not our brand, but we recognize we are losing market share uh, to them. You know, that our uh, that people see us as the kind of thing that you bake with or give away to kids, but not the kind of thing that you'd be proud to bring to someone's house for a, a dinner party. And it's our, what we do day to day is to help them figure out fundamentally um, what that change in culture is. How do we quantify it? How do we categorize it? How do we bring a level of both sociological data and uh, you know sociological rigor, and then also, frankly, some MBA style, uh, you know, uh, growth and 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 business uh, quant um, to this to help them understand both what's happening out in culture, but then to think um, where this is going to grow, what the prediction will look like, and then also to imagine what's the next strategy here. I mean, what is fundamental? What why fundamentally are people gravitating towards that single origin chocolate that comes from that one farm in Belize instead of this, um, you know, the the brand that everybody's heard of and you can go pick up at the at the corner shop. And it's it's often a really sophisticated um, question. There's often, there's very rarely a single good answer, you know? Um, and that's actually, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but that's one of the issues that we've had to confront is that we have a really big tool set. We have a, a lot of uh, ability to to dig into some really, really rich data. But as most people, I think, listening know, it's very rare that the data comes back to you and points to one single thing, one single factor that's going to change everything. And that's also in part where we have clients that have lasted the entire time we've been at Sparks and Honey because we've existed. Because, you know, uh, if you're in the beauty industry, you have so many verticals, you have so many things going on. Um, or if you're in insurance and in the U.S. here, you know, we have this like some semi-ridiculous uh, um health insurance uh, system here that our, our clients I think also recognize can be a little ridiculous and um, want to understand how to best serve people. And that's a really complex question, right? So, um, you know, sometimes they're one-off projects, but usually the goal is to build out a more sophisticated relationship with them where we can be there for them in that day-to-day, helping them answer those small questions as they pop up. 
um, because we are, we, because we really feel like we have the, the methodology to help these companies unpack that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing, obviously, with culture in its entirety, right? It, it kind of changes and evolves and moves so fast. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of whether we're talking daily, weekly, monthly, whatever the case may be. So, um, and I mean, I've, I find it fascinating, as I said at the start, I bang on about the cultural piece of our industry an awful lot because I guess within the data and analytics industry as a whole, you know, from people like Gartner have done some, um, you know, research which suggests that, you know, 85% of data and analytics projects inside organizations fail or fail to deliver the amount of value they expect them to deliver because mm. of culture and the culture within the organization and how that cultural change needed to happen has not happened. You know, adoption's not occurred. People aren't doing what the business want them to do internally and therefore, you know, it's been yeah. a waste of money. So fascinated to kind of dig into this in terms of, you know, because it's ironic, is it not? We're saying talking about how data is helping you yeah. transform cultures for other businesses. And yet the, the biggest problem our industry faces is that they can't change cultures internally to get the most out of their data analytics. So um, sure. really, really fascinating. So I know that you guys obviously have a product and a methodology and all that stuff that, that kind of tackles this, uh, I guess, as a, as a starting point from a data perspective. So why don't you, you talk us through that? Sure. Um, well, uh, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a journey. But first of all, you are you are totally right. I'll um, you know outside of our uh, of our hard data, we have an advisory board, and um, I what you were saying reminded me of, of something an advisory board member said about our ability now to track our health data on like a personal level. Everyone's counting their steps. You can have the smartest blood glucose meter out there on the market, but it's really <laughs> hard to figure out what to do with the data. And that's often how I try to explain to people that sort of challenge facing uh, people who do data in sort of marketing and strategy in the first place, that our ability to gather the data is not, is, is well, it's not unlimited, but it's pretty big. The, the real question and the real difficulty is figuring out what to do with it, right? Um, just as you don't know what to do with your 10,000 steps. Um, <laughs> one, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you, you personally, Kyle, are counting them. Um, no, uh, so we have a product called Q. It's our cultural intelligence platform. Um, if you tune into our daily culture briefing, which airs uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at noon on LinkedIn, uh, New York time, of course, uh, you can see us use it live. And Q is a, um, Q is a, a way for us to honestly kick ourselves into, into gear. To understand it, you have to understand a little bit the history of, of Sparks and Honey, which was started at the era of sort of the social listening agency, uh, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Some of you may even, you know, sort of have worked in them. Um, and they're still around, you know, I think they've evolved, but certainly, you know, in the sort of early 2010s, there was this, you know, ability out there to start aggregating millions and millions of tweets and Facebook posts and understand the like word patterns in them. Um, and we have several tools that do that and we use them with clients and they are, um, you know, like any tool, they are, they're good at solving the issue uh, that they're built to solve. That said, one of the things that we need uh, at, at Sparks and Honey is, is honestly, it comes down to sort of uh, efficiency and, uh, and um, you know, prediction. And so a, a significant issue for us is that many of the, some of those tools that we use work very quickly, but some of them, if anybody's ever been on one of those really complex social listening tools, you will find that you, you know, you build your Boolean, you set it, you come back three hours later. Sometimes you come back overnight because you're looking at something enormous and you realize you have to recut the data because, you know, you don't have the right term in there. Or you're faced with a question of saying, you know, it, am I going to really, if I want to, if I have a client that wants to understand what the role of empathy, can I really jump onto a standard um, social listening tool and, and, and type in empathy and get anything useful out of that? Is that going to give me the sense of the changing role of empathy in, you know, the post-Trump, post-Brexit world or, or something? Um, and that's what I think made us want to develop our own product too. So there is essentially a tech startup within the Sparks and Honey as, the, as a startup. And, and um, a big part of this is that we have a trend taxonomy that we call the elements of culture. So um, the best way to explain those is to imagine, you know, yourself back in high school thinking about the periodic table of elements. You'll remember that every molecule is made up of, you know, your borons and your, and your hydrogen and um, so we look at every trend, whether it's things from corporate transparency to the unicorn latte as being made up of those different elements of culture. 
And so what Q does is it uses five layers of AI and natural language processing to read millions of articles, to look for like word patterns, tag those word patterns to those different elements of culture. And then what's exciting is that we can take the fundamental elements of culture change, look at what, you know, what, what are at play in this story? What are those driving, those true elements of culture that are moving that culture change forward? And then through data regression, we can do something that almost no social listening tool does, which is give predictive data, which is to say, which ones do we expect to accelerate and which ones do we expect to decelerate? Which ones have the most energy? Which ones have the most reach? Um, that is an incredibly valuable tool. And it goes back, I think, to something I've been thinking about a lot lately, that um, the change that we've made is to prioritize efficiency and prediction. You can go in, you can create that Boolean, you can get a, with Q and create a really, really strong sense of what's going on. And you got to learn how to read the data, but you can go in and, and do all of this in 15 minutes. And that's just not simply possible with most of the tools out there on the market, even if they're hyper sophisticated, even if they you can, you know, do some really amazing things with them. There is a fundamental issue of both efficiency and prediction. And that has been a real breakthrough for us, because in many ways, our our clients, you know, uh, are business minded. They want to see data. They want, you know, there is no client in the world that doesn't want to see year over year somewhere in a deck. Um, and what we're able to do is to say not just what has happened, but to predict what will happen. And that is a really, really valuable thing that Q has that I am not aware of other products on the market um, that can that can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's fascinating and uh, equally impressive, I guess. Is that then, you know, you're there for aiding organizations to start to make pretty big, you know, significant business decisions about, what they're going to do next as far as, you know, keeping up to date with the latest trends as far as culture goes and how people are thinking and feeling about them as a brand, right? Yes, exactly. And I think I think one thing about a lot of traditional social listening tools and the way that social listening was, was done certainly in the past decade was that it was about collecting information, which don't get me wrong, is incredibly valuable. There are lots of uh, organizations out there that, that do that. And that is really, and honestly, we often use their public stuff. You know, uh, that is a really, really valuable thing that people can do because especially in a world that is so complex, so global, that having all that information under one roof is something that is very, very valuable, right? But what clients often want help understanding is not just what, again, not just what is going on, but where culture might be might be headed, and so I think that's one of those significant changes that we that we that we focus on is to um, move from and Q let us do that. Honestly, Q, it, in my in my opinion, my CEO might tell it differently. It let us move from information and strategy based on information to information plus prediction, and then strategy on 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 where to go. And it just makes our things feel more grounded. Especially as you were saying, clients are coming to us with really big asks. You know, we tend to work in the uh, one to two year range, right? But also sometimes they'll come to us and say, they want to understand the world in 2030. I heard someone talking about 2035 the other day for a, a project. Now, we're not a futures organization uh, necessarily, but we think a lot about it. And, um, you know, this is helping us to do that with, I think, not just not just qualitative strength, but with some real quantitative rigor as well. Yeah. I've got some questions around how you go about doing that from a, I guess, platform perspective. Sure. But, but before I jump into that, Ben, I want you to try and help me to understand something because culture as a term is very broad, right? How, how do you identify what organizations mean when they come to you and say, what does culture look like in two years? <laughs> that is such a good question. And I'm sure everyone now is picturing their introductory sociology class where the professor <laughs> goes up and writes on the board the first day, what is culture? Okay, so the traditional definition that we give at Sparks and Honey is that culture, or that I have been taught to give at Sparks and Honey, is that culture is anything functionally that humans can do and create that is tied to human behavior. So, uh, you know, uh, the movement of the tectonic plates, not culture. The movie San Andreas, where the rock fights an earthquake, that's culture. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, yeah, fine. Have you got, I guess, oh, as I said, I want to jump into how you go about sure, sure. doing that from a technical perspective, but is there a real life, and I know you can't give away all your trade secrets and client names and so on and so forth, but is there a real life example that you can point to to kind of say, look, this type of company had this type of query or question, and this is what we did, and this is the result? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I can talk about a, a couple of them because I think, you know, one thing about making your own culture quantifying system, which is functionally what we did, is that we were learning by the seat of our pants. You know, we're always, we're, we're, we obviously have different perspectives on it than our than our clients. You can license it. We have lots of different organizations who license it out. We have a whole system within Sparks and Honey to help train you and make you a better user of, of Q and um, both within Omnicom and, and certainly outside of Omnicom as well. But you know, I mean, when when the system launched, we were trying to figure out how to make it valuable. And if you'll indulge me for a, a second here for a story to tell you the sort of the moment I realized that this Q system could do something that we couldn't do elsewhere was that, um, so we did some work for a, a governor uh, in a Northeastern US state. Very, very nice guy. Um, the state is uh, not famous perhaps for being friendly to uh, young people. Young people tend to leave it and then come back when they have kids. They expect you to change to go to the state instead of the state to change to meet you. And, uh, you know, he was newly elected. And I think he understood that that wasn't sustainable, right? Obviously, you know, older tax base, uh, crumbling infrastructure, all that kind of stuff he has to square. So he asked us uh, in conjunction with some other people to kind of uh, develop a millennial forward strategy for them to think about as he entered the state. We don't do a ton of government work, but when we do government work, it is often around this sort of um, this sort of sense of, of understanding a culture that feels fundamentally unrepresented in the halls of, of power. And sometimes that's talking to kids. Sometimes we did a ton of work on, um, on extremism. Um, so this is sort of in that vein. And you know, one thing that we wanted to talk about uh, this uh, uh, northeastern uh, governor is is that the state has a beautiful shoreline, right? Um, Obviously, that is impacted by climate change and rising sea levels. And what we needed to quantify functionally was how the difference between the way that baby boomers, who fundamentally run the state, and millennials, how they view climate change at large, right? What is the, how, how is culture broadly, because let's face it, they're not just reading information in their own state or even in their own country. Um, what are they, what are they seeing fundamentally that, that's going to look different? And, you know, Q pulls from, you know, thousands of different, um, published, uh, articles. So really anything with the URL can be pulled in. Although our bread and butter is often things like, uh, blog posts, uh, news articles, Reddit threads, even Twitter can, can end up in there. So we, uh, you know, there is no good way to quantify this. I am searching high and low in the world of polling to figure out some different perspectives, uh, generationally on climate change. And, you know, we had this new system. I said, well, let's see what Q can do. And we found two things that were a couple things that were really, really important. So fundamentally, the way you use Q, you build out a, a Boolean, a search around climate change terms. And then you add, you can add the terms around, um, say, baby boomer or millennial. And, you know, we have some updates coming that will do some of that automatically for you. Um, so when we looked at what happened with baby boomers, we saw the elements of culture that are tagged frequently to politics. So they were our elements of culture around screaming, the moral imperative, blurred responsibility. Um, and that made a lot of sense, right? And so we then changed the Boolean, dropped the, um, the, the baby boomer terms and added in millennial terms. And we found not only that there were, that there were 500% more conversation uh, in the media and, and out there broadly about climate change and millennials compared to baby boomers, but also that those elements of culture, that those fundamental trends in there were were lifestyle trends. They weren't necessarily, I mean, politics were in there, but things that popped up uh, more regularly were ones that we that we tend to associate, that we tend to see when we look at, um, you know, clients in the, in the lifestyle and the home goods and, and the food industry, right? Um, and what that said to me was, A, not only is this way more pressing for millennials, 500% more pressing, you could say, but also that there is a fundamental different argument going on here. That boomers, in, you know, in many ways, are looking at climate change as a, as a political issue, as, as something that's going to maybe change how they vote or how they feel when they watch, you know, the news at night. Um, millennials see it as a real lifestyle issue. And if you are a if you are that governor and you want people to buy those second homes or those first homes on the on the beautiful shoreline, well, millennials don't think that that home might be there in twenty years. So why would they make the investment? You know, And so if you're going to build climate change policy, if you're going to try to make your state feel more open, ta even tax incentive policies for for you know fixing up homes in certain areas, you need to take into consideration that, boomers don't think about their homes necessarily when they think about climate change and millennials fundamentally do. And that was the moment that Q sort of clicked for me because I couldn't fundamentally find the data that would prove that out. Um, and then also offer predictions on which of those elements of culture not only existed, but which ones were going to grow uh, the fastest. So you can say, yeah, for boomers, this is going to stay political and probably get more 
uh, probably get even more horrifying, to be honest. But uh, for millennials, the, the trends that were growing were fundamentally those ones around lifestyle. And so that is an early way that we've used Q, but it has really helped to, to, as you can see, it's a way of structuring the data. It's a way of understanding where the data comes from. It's a way of also, when you take a complex topic like climate change to begin to categorize it, because there is no such thing as just thinking about climate change. You think about uh, how it'll affect your life, how it'll affect business, how it'll affect politics. And what Q lets us do once you're trained on it is to begin to do that categorization. And that's really, really valuable. And it's only grown since there. That was like the, I guess that was the um, the summer of, of 2019 when we did that project. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's... Um... That's, I mean, that's fascinating. That's really, really interesting. So t- talk us through the technicalities of the process of how all of that's pieced together then, I guess, end to end in terms of, you know, running on a campaign like that, you know, where, how you pulling sure. it out, uh, where you're pulling it from, et cetera. Yeah. So Q is cool because it's global, which I really like. We are building out. It functions in, last I checked, it was functioning in 19 languages, uh, 50 million uh, articles. We actually limit the number of articles that can come in. We don't kind of like want to overheat it. Um, and I will say it's if you if you watch the Daily Culture Briefing, which again, I encourage you to tune in because I host it, um, you'll see that sometimes <laughs> we will end up with random uh, articles from Cyprus and Uganda. And, you know, I, 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 I love that kind of stuff because this is just not the kind of information that Google is going to spit out at you. Sometimes it will, but um, it is often uh, fascinating to, to look and go, oh, actually, you know, we cover K-beauty a lot, but what about Indonesian beauty? What about I-beauty? Um, so uh, it again, it pulls in from sources all over the world um, using various different uh, feeds. Uh, we also have the New York Times, the entire New York Times in there, which is certainly good for us English speakers because it goes back to something like 1856. So while most of our data is pretty fresh, we do also have some historic data in there. Um, I think one important thing, and and we may talk about this a little bit later, is we also try to bias the data a little bit in a positive way. If we just, if if you just asked me to write a list of the sources that I wanted to see, we would not be getting the right data. Let's be real. You know, I have my own my own interests, my own political affinities. There are there is a lot of data. Uh, there is a lot of data. A lot of sources out there that I don't read, but that doesn't mean that other people don't read. And so we do need those uh, in there to to an extent. Um, So that's helpful. It often helps break our bias. But essentially, um, if you want to do this sort of step-by-step process, you will build out a Boolean, which um, I think most of you people, anybody who's used Google is familiar with a Boolean. It's just a set of of search terms. Um, You have to be clever about how to use them, obviously. Um, There are different styles. People sometimes write exhaustive ones. People sometimes write shorter ones. Um, and basically Q will sort through, you know, in about a minute, Q will sort through those, that data and give you a, uh, it's indexed. You're not going to get all 50,000 responses. Um, but you will get the 500 or so the, or 200 or so that are considered most representative of the other kind of, uh, language out there in, in the search. Um, the, each of those articles, we call them signals. Uh, each of those signals will be tagged to the various elements of culture, right? So it, again, it will those will show up. So if you're interested in a single article, you can say, oh, well, what's really popping here is the, the element of culture clean or raw, for instance, if you're talking about, I don't know, salads um, or Indonesian beauty sometimes. Yeah. Um, so you, you'll get that information. And then it will also build out a zeitgeist map. And the zeitgeist map uh, is uh, our ability to see what is going on of the, it is taking an aggregated look at all of the signals in there and seeing what elements of culture are most frequently tagged. Because the assumption is if the trend is tagged more frequently, it is the most operative trend, right? It is the one that is there the most in the data that you have set the historical terms for. So, you know, maybe you're looking at, and that and that can be useful in that you can cut the data for a country. So you can say, well, what does this look like in the US versus what does this look like in China? What is this, you know, is there a fundamental difference between different places in the EU? And sometimes there really are. Sometimes you can really, you'll be, you'll be shocked by how different the, you know, the French and the German results are. Um, and obviously you can uh, type, you know, the, the Boolean, it helps to have some uh, someone who speaks French and German in there to, to really make that Boolean rich. But even if you don't, we can certainly use English language sources for that as well. Um, you'll, you'll get that data. You'll get that zeitgeist map. You can, you can see in the, in the briefing that helps us confirm what we thought we knew and often also help break some of those biases. Remember the lifestyle example from the millennials and climate change. That's a good example of a zeitgeist map that I didn't expect to see. 
Um, and then we have a whole suite of tools there to help you process that data, to cut it up, to categorize it. We have a prediction slide that lets you watch the two, the, the 12 and 24 month growth rates for those different elements of culture. So clean might be the operative trend that we're interested in and thinking about purity of ingredients today, but maybe its growth rate isn't as impressive as say, um, you know, radical transparency. People want uh, you know, people may be less interested in, the, in that period of ingredients, but may want to know every ingredient in there going forward. So that's that interesting delta to talk about with clients where it's like today you are living in this world where people demand to know um, that the ingredients are clean and pure. Um, tomorrow, people are going to want to see every ingredient on that label and be able to understand what that is. And that's where if you're a beauty brand or you're a food brand, that's where those implications come in because you clients sort of say, you know, oh shit, we have to rethink our packaging here to match that culture change. And more often we're thinking about, you know, um, advertising and, and branding, but sometimes those implications are so wide reaching that it is the uh, it is telling someone fundamentally, you need to change what your package looks like and, and what it offers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that, that's the kind of the information that, that we offer that Q gives and it's, you know, uh, a whole training process to figure out how to cut that data and make that those good decisions. Are you and your team at Sparks and Honey, do you perform that on behalf of your clients or I guess in conjunction with your clients or is that something that they can purchase, you know, that they can do themselves? Uh, yes and yes. Some clients yeah. have subscriptions and sometimes we'll work with them directly uh, and clients pick this stuff up. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's very cool that way sometimes to watch them get really into the methodology, but that is something that we fundamentally do. And then clients can also do an add-on with, uh, with Q. So it is that mix of consulting and product. And oftentimes they really, um, they, they, they sync very nicely with each other. Yeah, I guess in, in terms of, uh, and this is a topic that, you know, we go round and round in circles on in the data and analytics industry, right around value and return on investment and all of that type mm -hmm. of, of stuff. I guess how easy is it or not as the case may be to kind of tie the work that you guys do with the clients that you do it with to kind of the commercial benefits and, and value that they're getting from this? Because I imagine that that's probably as difficult as it is, you know, anywhere. Yeah, it, it's trickier. I'm sure lots of people understand that trickiness. I mean, that's that's the funny thing of moving out of when, you know, when I talk to my digital marketing friends, that's the great, one of the great things about working in something like digital marketing or, or uh, media sales is you really get those numbers and you can say, you know, 12% bump, right? Um, our, we, there are moments where we can do that. I find that the most impressive, the, 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 the way that we can tell that we have broken through is often seeing, I mean, sometimes you can just see it in plain old advertising and sometimes you can see it in, in, in really, really direct ways. In other ways, I mean, we did, I brought up that empathy example before. We did this fabulous project for a European airline that wanted to understand if uh, people uh, in the Western hemisphere, specifically US, Canada, and Brazil, if international travel for them was an empathy building exercise, right? They had done that uh, marketing in, in Europe and it had been successful and they were planning to expand it to you know the US and Canada and Brazil and sort of went, well, actually we don't know that that's, that, that these people look at uh, international travel as this, in the same way that Europeans do and why they send their kids to make sure they go do some international travel to be better uh, global citizens. Um, and first of all, we proved that for most people it does, which was uh, which is exciting. Um, but it was a, it was a major investment and a really, really intense project. And I will say what was fascinating was having those clients come back to us a year later and hearing them speak entirely differently about it, not just more confidence in sort of their their brand strategy, but also, um, you know, it is wild to watch your words from a deck fall out of someone's mouth, but really thinking differently about the ways in which this company, which comes from, which, you know, fundamentally exists to get you from point A to point B. And um, while they do it as well as they can, you know, no one loves flying necessarily. Um, thinking really differently about their role in culture and what their service could mean to people. The, the, the lasting good that they could do as they also struggle with, you know, as they also grapple with their place in the environment, making sure the food on, on board is good. There's a lot going on there. And it was fascinating to see a, a company whose um, sort of brand compass had fundamentally been reoriented by our work. So yes, there are moments where you could prove out the ROI. Yes, there are moments where I, I see something on the subway and go, I think I did that. Um, but, uh, the, the best is, is really seeing the internal understanding in a company, uh, change fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. Cause I think, you know, that's, that's a, a problem really that the data and analytics industry has as a whole in terms of being able to tie back, well, we've 
given you this insight, we've taken this action, but putting a quantifiable number on totally what that what that has done, you know, because who knows? I mean, I'm sure it has been because of the decisions been made on off the insight that you've gathered, right? But um, there's a whole host of factors at play there, and and I guess to tie that back to you know, it, it's difficult, which uh, makes sense. But I mean, the whole concept in itself is is usually fascinating. Do you do you do much in terms of changing culture within organizations? I know you said not not that much, but is that something that you've ever done before? This is just me talking we're, out loud out of interest. <laughs> no, we're actually we're doing a lot more of that, which is funny because when I started, I told people I was a cultural strategist and my friends were like, so you work in HR? And I was like, no, no, not not that the HR isn't wonderful. Don't get me wrong, but no, I'm not in human resources. Um, but increasingly we actually kind of are in human resources. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of a, you know, now we, we're building out a major DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion practice. It's very cool. I encourage anybody who is interested in that to go to reports.sparksandhoney.com and check out our latest report, which is called the equity effect. And it's all about how to build more equitable organizations. Um, but you know, I mean, listen, this is not something we were initially tasked with, but I will say, Going back to the work example, we were asked by a, uh, a client of ours, who's a trade organization, to help them think about um, perhaps building out a, an incubator uh, system, right? They exist in this industry that has some innovation, but not a ton of innovation. They feel a little left behind. And as that trade group, they're sort of asking themselves, well, do we need to front the money to start you know, an incubator? Do we need a Y Combinator for uh, for our own industry? And we were doing, you know, the the real, it was it was very management consulting kind of work. We're talking to all these people. We're asking what kind of money is needed, what kind of structure is needed. And we got a fabulous insight from uh, from a woman who works uh, in, in some designy spaces in New York. And she said to us, and um, I'm sure some of your listeners know this, she was like, those incubator programs are full of white guys in their mid-20s from Stanford because they are built for white men in their 20s from Stanford. They are not, if you have kids, if you don't have the network connections, if you are not at the right institutions, you might have the best idea in the world, you're not going to find your way into that right incubator program. Um, and we took that to heart and realized that what we needed was not only a strategy for how to build out their this sort of innovation program and what some of the KPIs should be, but also they need fundamentally to build inclusion into the into the program. And so we reached out to a, to someone from our advisory board who works very deeply on this stuff. He's now uh, works directly on that at a major movie studio, and he gave us some fabulous advice about how to make sure that inclusion is not bolted on at the end, but built in. And it's funny because this was not anything that the client had thought had asked us for. They're they're great and they are wonderful. It just it wasn't in the scope of work. Um, and in some ways, I, I I joked. Someone said it was like the cherry on top, and I was like, actually, I I think what we have here is like the salad dressing or or the or the gravy. Like it made it all come together in a way that it wouldn't have worked had we not thrown this in there. Because if they were going to try to build that incubator program without that inclusive culture built in, what it wasn't going to fly. Um, and so now increasingly we are doing that for organizations to help them because so much of internal culture is external culture. The people you bring in will impact the creative and the product that goes out. And so it feels almost, you know, it feels like you're only doing half your job if you're telling them what the culture change is and not saying at least, you know, how to pay attention to that, that sense of inclusion and how to, you know, make sure that you prioritize uh, good creative strategy and, and good hiring strategy that makes that all come together. Mm, yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. Um, you spoke there about the equity effect report. Um, mm -hmm. And I recall you giving me a bit of a run through that when we were speaking offline. So talk us through what that is. Yeah, so we do a uh, about uh, twice a year. We do an IP report at Sparks and Honey. Again, you can find them all at reports.sparksandhoney.com. And um, this report uh, is uh, focusing specifically on equity. We were looking at the at the organization of the future, right? The post-pandemic organization. Um, and it's funny to have this conversation today because yesterday was sort of Sparks and Honey's like unofficial. We'd like you to be back in the office if you can Wednesdays. So this is definitely something worth thinking about, about changing organizations. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are going through something similar right now. Um, and what we wanted to look at were kind of the cultural shifts in what that post-pandemic organization would look like. And time and time again, what came back was not, you know, the, the hybrid work stuff is certainly important. The rethinking, the how much you're in the office is certainly important. 
But it all laddered up. The cultural shifts that those ladder up to are not about using Zoom or not using Zoom. They're about equity and about making sure that everyone feels welcome and included in an organization because that's when you're going to get your best work. And so we're thinking about everything from shared futures to, you know, making change in a way that is um, purposeful, right? And to uh, imagine what the future of your organization looks like in a way that is really, really intentional. Um, there are obviously design questions there, thinking about um, everything from, you know, I mean, you can talk about everything from office layout to, again, to some of those uh, more um, direct uh, direct implications um, about how you design your workday and your group. But ultimately what it comes down to is this sense that everything from the productivity of your organization, the happiness of the people within them, the community around you that you serve is tied to this idea, not just of inclusion and not just diversity. Those are really important, but the fundamental idea of equity that you are going to need to make investments um, greater investments in some spaces to reach the goals that you want to reach. And that, you know, this feels like a clarion call in many ways today, because, you know, this is when, as organizations go back into the office and, and, and have a chance to make a major change, this is where this information is valuable. Because if you don't think about how quickly we adapted to remote work and imagine that it's going to be probably about that same amount of time to adapt to the new sense of what, uh, of what, you know, hybrid uh, work is. And so, you know, in many ways, there is a small window here to ask yourselves, what can we do to make our organization more inclusive, more representative, make sure voices are heard and make sure that, again, you know, that um, it's so funny because I talked about efficiency and prediction earlier. An equitable organization is in many ways a more efficient organization because you have more minds, more cognitive diversity, and you have one that's more predictive because culture is only getting more dynamic and more heterogeneous. And so if you want your organization to represent the clients that you will serve in the future, make sure that your company is open to the idea and, and hires to have that future consumer, that future world in mind. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing for sure, Ben, that if you want to get into an argument, you know, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, the, the easiest way to do that is to go onto LinkedIn and put your opinion on there about the future of work or hybrid. Work, oh, my God. Yes. Whether you need to be in the office or not, because um, that's the thing that certainly divides opinion the most. But I think you're absolutely right there, because, I mean, the the world has changed. You know, we adapted you know you, you basically had organizations that had never ever ever had anyone working from home overnight put a whole workforce you know in the ability to work from home so we know it, it can be done um and you know I, I find it fascinating to watch how different organizations are approaching this and um i guess there's an awful lot of bad press for some organizations that have come back and right. said you know we need five days in the week and everyone's like well why? You know, so it's uh, and that whole. Well, and I also, I also think that that's part of that. I mean, listen, I'm an extrovert. I'm, I'm sure your listeners can tell right now. I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I want to get back into the office to a degree. I can't sit in my apartment and do this work all the time. Right. I find that there is a value to being in, if nothing else, to build culture and, and, God, it makes training much, much easier, right? Um, but I also think that, you know, I, I read an article earlier this week about um, the fact that uh, employees from marginalized communities, employees of color, employees who are, or are even just, you know, um, uh, a gender that's not well represented on a team, that there's a lot of hesitancy about coming back into the office, that when you're, when you're just interfacing with people through, through you know, uh, web chat and email and Slack, I mean, that is, you know, there are obviously degrees to which that can be frustrating. But there are some people who I think are hesitant to come back into the office because they worry about being exposed to the bad old days of, of culture. And so while it is a fascinating conversation to ask ourselves, like, what is the optimal amount of work that we can do from our office and from our homes? We have to remember that culture plays a really big role in that and that that doesn't look the same. It's not just are you an introvert, or introvert or an extrovert. It's also do you come do you work at an organization where you feel value, where you feel like you can bring your whole self to work where you feel like you have, um, because that is the kind of thing that's going to slow down some of that, uh, some of that efficiency. And so um, that's what I, I, I think that's a fascinating conversation. Obviously, it's definitely something we've discussed uh, in our briefings because it's, it's so multifaceted. And, you know, um, if you're a client listening and want to learn more about this, you know, give us a ring. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the, the daily culture 
briefings um, a couple of times. Give us an insight into that. You know, what is it? How does it work? Why do you do it? Etc. Yeah. So um, the daily culture briefing started when, as I, if you'll, if you'll remember earlier back in the podcast, I said Sparks and Honey started as like, you know, three desks at the side of an office. Um, and every day at noon, so the legend goes, uh, they would do a group work session. And they, as they grew, they added talking about the news for 15 minutes. They started inviting clients and prospective uh, employees to come, their friends to come. And suddenly... Uh, they were doing a basically a um, you know a, a, a week a, a daily culture briefing out there that took an hour of the day. Everyone closed their laptops, went to the center of the room, and looked at changes in culture as they were happening. Looking at travel and beauty and politics trends, and really keeping things very very fresh. And it grew out. We built a beautiful studio. Um, and in about 2019, our, um, our executive board decided what was really valuable was, you know, it was great to talk the pop culture stuff, but again, how many unicorn lattes, how many like fidget spinner signals can you really look at? Um, we wanted to look at things in the vertical and to make this more specific. Um, and so I started as one of the, the, the hosts. I have a background in, I was, a, I was briefly a tour guide uh, in historic old city Philadelphia. So I love you missed that uh, background. <laughs> yes, I did leave that out. But if any if anybody wants to learn about our founding fathers um, and watch me walk backwards on cobblestone streets, I'm happy to give you a tour of American history. Um, yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I started as, as, as one of the, the directors at, helping to run that, um, took it over. And now fundamentally, we really built it out into this point where, um, and, you know, three times a week, we come together at, as I said, noon New York time to discuss really deep topics. I, you know, as yesterday, as of the airing of this, the taping of this podcast, uh, we had a fabulous conversation about non-binary style and thinking about the ways in which as we remove gender from our identity politics or rethink gender in our identity politics, that there are gonna be trickle down effects in the world of, of design and fashion. And actually what was fascinating about that conversation was we saw a, a signal about beauty. Um, and I was sort of, you know, and we, we came to this conclusion that it's not just that you have to build different beauty products to make sure men feel comfortable getting them, that you focus on things like customization and personalization over, you know, heavy gender coding, but also that that might require the, you know, the retailers of the world, your Sephora's, your, you know, the even the supermarket um, section that has, you know, the, that has the beauty supplies to rethink the way they're laid out to make people who are new to this or are looking for different ways in to, to succeed. And, and that's the kind of cultural nugget that we are looking for in these daily culture briefings. Um, they exist to make us smarter. They exist to put out our, our thought leadership. They're a, they're a wonderful chance for us to set down the client work and to say not just what's happening in the scope of work and in this particular project, but what's happening fundamentally in the world around us. And those insights we generate in, in the briefing don't just make for great marketing um, uh, collateral, but also they make us smarter. They keep us up on trends. I think they genuinely change the way we as an organization think. And what was interesting is that, you know, we used to stream it live and we'd record them and, um, you know, the pandemic happened and we sent home and it's, it's funny, it's only now that I recognize that that could have easily killed off the culture briefings. We could have just completely let them go. But I think we got lucky that there was an audience out there that people continued to find some real value in those conversations, not just internally, but for our many viewers, for our viewers outside. And um, so that has kept us alive and, and sustained that. And what's fabulous about being back in our office, and sometime soon we will accept, uh, you know, masked vaccinated guests who want to come in. I can't give people a hard deadline, but I swear at some point you can hit me up on LinkedIn and come visit us in our Manhattan studio is that we're getting back to doing that in a way that's even more dynamic with um, without the constraints of sort of the Zoom, the, the tiny little Zoom call. Um, so yeah, it's a really valuable part of our culture. It's, it's a fabulous part of my job to help steward that. Um, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you want to make your data feel valuable, if you want to understand where sort of culture is going, you have to ask yourselves these questions. And I think uh, I would encourage all of your listeners to, to tune in um, because I think they'll get a lot out of it. And I think it will push them to often think differently um, about uh, the trends that are fundamental to the work that they're doing, even if they're not trend forecasters. Yeah. I mean, it sounds really interesting. And just even in that example that you gave there, 
it's something that you just don't really think about that often, do you? We all know, you know, yeah. like the, the whole gender thing that you that you spoke of. Of course, we know it's a very important topic and organisations are looking and thinking and feeling about what do we do? How do we tackle this? But then you never you never really think beyond that, right? You know, you never really think what what are the implications to the retailers that sell this stuff? You know, that's is that going to have to change the way they lay their stores out and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, so all of that yeah. stuff is, is really kind of thought provoking, which. Um, yeah, is, is it's really great to cool. have. It's great to have the license to go down those those rabbit holes. I, I you know, uh, in the way that you might have done it in university uh, and don't necessarily get a chance to do in your in your day to day work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Conscious of of time, um, if anyone wants to reach out to you, whether we're talking about the daily culture briefings, whether we're talking about working with yourself and Sparks and, and Honey, um, whether they're questions about what whatever they've heard and some of the stuff today what's the best way for them to to reach you yeah i'd encourage everyone including yourself to reach out to me on on linkedin i'm happy to point you in the right direction i mean answer questions but some of these things are, are even beyond me and i can point you obviously to the right um to the right people we're you know we really we are very much we take the open agency credo to heart so um i'm always happy to talk and feel free to reach out and again check out those daily culture briefings because they're uh, a really fabulous chance, I think, to kick your own cultural insight development skills, uh, you know, up a notch. And uh, you can always also, we have a, we have a little chat box, so feel free to jump in and we'll make sure you get to be part of that conversation too. Nice. Well, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on and being so uh, open and, and sharing some examples. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, total delight. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week.